Well, in 1970, um, the soul singer Edwin Starr released what would become his most famous and successful song. It was simply entitled War. And it came out at the height of the war in Vietnam. And it had an impassioned star sort of belting out the opening line. War? Huh. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. You never get a white Irishman to do a soul song. But that sentiment, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. That struck a chord for people in 1970. And the song has remained popular ever since. And this morning we come to a famous story in the Old Testament that recounts a war between the Israelites and the Philistines. And it's hard to read passages like this in the Bible without a sense of sadness that the region and the world they're set in has seen war and violence again and again throughout history. Witness the fighting going on today in Gaza. So what are we to make of passages like this in the Bible? Does this story of David and Goliath glamorize war? Because a lot of people suspect it does. A lot of people think that the Old Testament in particular does glamorize war, and so they argue that Christians should steer clear of the Old Testament. They regard it as outdated and barbaric, and we should leave it alone. So should passages like this one trouble us as Christians? Should they embarrass us even? See, over the course of the second half of the 20th century and up to the present day, there's been a changing attitude to war in Western culture. And I can think of two different film versions of Shakespeare's play, Henry V, to illustrate that well. The first version was filmed by Laurence Olivier, in 1944. It came out during World War II and its vibrant colours and huge scale came across as as a rallying cry for England to take up arms and fight to the last, really, in a time of war. But then you fast forward 40 years and come to 1989 when Kenneth Branagh filmed the same play and his film had grim and bloody battle scenes and a Henry who weeps over going to war. And when we watch Olivier's film today, it can feel a bit too patriotic and triumphalist even for modern taste, while Branagh's film is more in keeping with modern attitudes towards war. But is war always an evil? Is Edwin Starr right to say that it's good for absolutely nothing? See, as we come to this passage of David and Goliath, should we be shouting at the characters, just stop fighting, forgive one another, just get along. You see, going back to Olivier's Henry V, it was filmed during World War II, and so arguably, its call to fight was a right one. If the Allied forces had simply chosen to, to forgive Hitler for his aggression and just not gone to war, who knows what more suffering he might have caused. See, there are causes worth fighting for, like the fight against Nazi Germany. And the Bible does present some causes worth fighting for, some wars as necessary and worth fighting. So the Bible-reading Christian is going to have a mixed view of war. With the rest of creation on one hand, we are going to long for the day when there will be no more wars. When in the words of Isaiah the prophet, swords will be beaten into plowshares and nations will not take up sword against nation anymore. 
See, God's will is clear in Scripture. War is a consequence of human sin. And war will not last forever. When Christ returns, he will bring an end to war. So on one hand, the Christian will hate war and the pain and the devastation it causes. But at the same time, the Bible is not embarrassed to describe the Christian life in terms of a war. The moment someone chooses to follow Jesus, they enter into a war. A war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of sin and the devil. It's not a conventional war like the one described here. It's not one we fight with sword or gun. But it is a very real war that has raged since at least Genesis 3. And it will only be over when Jesus Christ returns to restore his creation. And it's a war in which every Christian is called to fight. So when we come to this story of David and Goliath, we can see played out in it some key aspects of the spiritual war in which every Christian is involved. And we're reminded of some key truths we need to remember if we're going to be able to fight in that war. So just to recap for a moment, those of you who were here last week will remember that 1 Samuel 16 we saw David being anointed by Samuel as the king over Israel. And that was a chapter that emphasised David's humility. The fact he wasn't looking to become a king, but that God chose him as a man after his own heart. And in David's humility and seeming weakness, we saw a picture of his great descendant Jesus, the servant king who humbled himself to enter our world. But as we come to 1 Samuel 17 this morning... We're going to learn something new about David. He wasn't just a humble king. He was also a warrior king. See, Israel didn't just need a humble ruler. They needed a strong ruler. Someone who could lead them against their enemies. Israel needed a saviour. And this chapter presents David as the saviour God had chosen for them. And in this I want to suggest that David, again, is a powerful picture to us of Jesus. The humble king who nonetheless has the power and the strength to save us from our sin and from the enemies that range against us. Now, I need to be careful here, because we can't always fall into the trap of making a leap from an Old Testament character to Jesus. Because again, if we do that, every Old Testament story just begins to sound the same. Again, I'm reminded of, of the vicar speaking to a Sunday school class, and he asked the children a question. Now, children, what has fur, a long bushy tail, and gathers nuts for the winter? And one child nervously raised his hand to answer. Well, I know the answer is meant to be Jesus, but it sounds a lot like a squirrel to me. We see sometimes in the Old Testament, a squirrel is a squirrel. We don't always have to leap to Jesus to make sense of an Old Testament story. And we're going to see over the next few weeks that David, he often is a model of all of us. He's the model believer. He struggles with sin like the rest of us. He struggles to trust God like the rest of us. So David doesn't always stand for Jesus in the Old Testament. But there is a strong connection between David and Jesus. See, Jesus was a descendant of David. So we're bound to see a family likeness between the two. 
like Jesus, David is God's anointed king in this passage. And David's victory over Goliath foreshadows in an exciting and vivid way Jesus' victory over all his enemies on our behalf through his death and resurrection. So he wants to see this morning that the story of David and Goliath is basically the story of the gospel, the Christian message writ large. See, it's a story that was lovingly recorded by the Israelites in great detail. The ancient Israelites loved to remember David's victory over Goliath as a reminder for them of the God they worshipped. And similarly for the Christian, we can read this story as a reminder to us of our Saviour and the victory he has won on our behalf. So what are these key truths about the Christian life that this story helps us to see? Well, first of all, I think this story reminds us that if we're a Christian here this morning, we have a terrible enemy to contend with. See, in verse 1 of this story, we meet the Philistines again. And they're the recurring enemy of God's people, the Israelites, throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And this time, when they square up to Israel, they've got a new weapon on their side. A man called Goliath. Verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat of scale armour of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, and his shield bearer went ahead of him. See, see the detail the writer goes into here. He's telling us this is no ordinary Philistine soldier. This is a monster. The writer of 1 Samuel is keen for us to see Goliath clearly here and to recognize the huge threat he posed to Israel and to Israel's morale. Because Goliath not only looks terrifying, he sounds terrifying as well. Verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. See, Goliath issues this challenge to Israel. And you can hear the mocking tone in his voice. See, previously in 1 Samuel, the Philistines had fought Israel before. Sometimes the Philistines won, sometimes the Israelites won. But the Philistines are confident they now have a champion who cannot be beaten in hand-to-hand combat. Goliath would represent the whole Philistine nation, and Israelite would be chosen to represent Israel. The two would fight, and Goliath would win. It was an approach to warfare that favoured the Philistines. The Philistines were confident they had the champion who would win. And the problem for Israel was that as they heard Goliath's threats, they were inclined to agree with the Philistines. Verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. See, Goliath succeeded in paralyzing the Israelite army 
through fear. All of Israel was terrified of him. Even there came Saul, who was the natural opponent for Goliath, who elsewhere has said he was a head taller than anyone else in Israel. But even Saul refused to fight Goliath. He was dismayed, verse 11 tells us. So what has Goliath got to do with us? Well, I want to suggest that he acts as a powerful picture for the Christian of the terrible enemy we have to struggle against when we begin to follow Jesus. Goliath is a vivid picture of the devil and sin. And at the moment I mentioned the devil, I realised that, that we face a problem. Because for a lot of modern people, the devil suggests either sort of a comedy figure, complete with red tights and a pitchfork, or more simply, he's a figment of someone's imagination. He simply doesn't exist. But if that's what we think about the devil, then we have to find ways of explaining some key aspects of New Testament teaching. See, Jesus believed in the devil. He was tempted personally by him in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And Jesus' followers were clear with the early Christians the devil was alive and well and they needed to be alert to that. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In Ephesians 6, 11 to 12, Paul urges the early Christians to take their stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, the Bible's clear. The devil is real. But so often we deny that. The film The Usual Suspects puts it very well. And it says, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was in convincing the world he didn't exist. And we can go further than that. Perhaps the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was in convincing the church he doesn't exist. But what difference does it really make whether we believe in a devil or not? Let me ask us the following questions. Are you surprised when you find it difficult to pray? Are you surprised when you find trusting God just seems to go against the grain? Does it shock you just how natural it feels to criticise the people around you? A friend, a family member, a church leader. Are you ever struck by the sense that to truly love and care for someone selflessly, you are swimming upstream? You are going against the current. You hear thought for the day on the radio that tells you to be nice to each other. And you think, that's a great idea. Why can't I do it? You know Jesus wants you to forgive, but you just cannot bring yourself to forgive that person. You want to be patient with the needs of your friends, but you just snap at them instead. You want to consider other people's interests first, but there's always a voice in your head going, but what about me? What about my needs? See, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are in a war. And your enemy in that war 
is the devil. And he is passionately committed to shipwrecking your faith and removing your joy in knowing Jesus at every turn of your life. Peter says he is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And if you deny his existence, then he will have more and more free reign in your life. If you like Goliath, the devil is a powerful enemy. In Ephesians 6, Paul warns us we cannot stand against him on our own. We need the armour of God and we need the people of God standing with us. We underestimate the devil at our peril. But like Goliath too, the devil is also a subtle enemy. Because look over the story again with Goliath. For all Goliath's brute strength, the main damage he does to the Israelite army is actually through his words, through what he says to them. Verse 11, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And similarly for us, the devil rarely goes on an all-out frontal attack on Christians. He's a good deal more subtle than that, and his power is displayed in his words. He tries to make us doubt God's words. A tactic he used back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, when he began his temptation of Adam and Eve with the phrase, did God really say? And that's a tactic he uses today. Did God really say you should forgive one another as he's forgiven you? But surely he didn't mean that person. Not for what they did to you. How can you forgive them? That just lets them off the hook. God didn't really mean that. Did God really say marriage is for life? But surely that doesn't apply to you. Your husband, your wife, they're so cold and you feel so energized when you spend time with that other person, that other friend. Did God really say you can trust him? Surely all the modern scholars tell us the Bible is just made up. Did God really say those things? Did God really make those promises? And other times the devil focuses our attention on our own feelings and weaknesses and he tries to make us doubt our standing with God. Like Goliath, his weapon is mockery. He mocks us and he mocks our God. Come on, he says, isn't it time you stop calling yourself a Christian? You're not a very good one. Surely God is just going to give up on you after that mess you made again. Just call it a day. Why should God bear with you? You have used up every ounce of his grace. He mocks us. And in the face of that sort of assault, we often end up feeling like Saul and the Israelites in verse 11. We're terrified. We're broken by it. We're ready to throw in the towel. And our sinful, fearful hearts are are all too ready to believe the devil's lies and to mistrust God. So like the Israelites, our enemy isn't just outside us, it's also within us, in our hearts. Just as Saul and his army could not believe God was strong enough to deal with Goliath, so our hearts lack that faith and courage to trust God in the face of the devil's taunts. 
As Galatians 5.17 puts it, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature, they are in conflict with each other. See, we have an enemy outside, the devil, and we have an enemy within, our sinful natures. And we've got to fight against these enemies. But how can we? How can we hope to stand against the steady onslaught of mockery of our hearts and of the devil? What can we do against an enemy like that? Well, that's where the rest of this story has so much to teach us. And just look at verse 12 for a minute, because you can almost hear the relief dripping off the writer's pen in verse 12, as he says, Now David was the son of an Epaphrite named Jesse. See, we've had 11 verses of bad news, of Goliath and taunts and mockery. But thank God, here is David in verse 12. We're introduced to him again. We've not seen him in this chapter yet. And we'd be forgiven for forgetting all about him with this hulking frame of Goliath standing in the way. But here David is. And an Israelite reader would know from this point onwards, Goliath's days are numbered. They would hear David's name and they would know, here comes the cavalry. Here comes the champion to fight Goliath. Here comes the warrior who will shut Goliath up. See, in this chapter, David is the saviour of Israel and he is more than a match for any Philistine giant. Why? Because he's got the living God on his side. See, the tone of the whole story changes in verse 12. See, as readers of this story, we needed the first 11 verses to paint a black picture to convince us of the threat posed by Goliath. And I've argued this morning that as Christians, we need to see the terrible threat posed by the devil and by sin. But the writer of 1 Samuel didn't leave Israel in the despair of verse 11 because God didn't leave them there. God provided a saviour to defeat Goliath and silence his taunts. And for Christians here today, God has provided for us a great saviour, Jesus Christ, the son of David, who is able to defeat our terrible enemy of the devil and sin and set us free from his tyranny. We have a great saviour, this passage tells us. And we don't have time to go through this chapter in detail, but, but again and again in this story, the writer wants to stir us to excitement and joy as we see God's champion, David, in action. Just look at verse 26 with me. David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 32, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down. See, before this chapter, in 1 Samuel, we haven't actually heard David speak. 
Even though we met him in chapter 16, if you look over it again, we get no recorded speech from David in the Bible until verse 26 of this chapter. So until now, David has been a quiet man, a humble man. But you see, when he speaks, his words have power. See, we saw the damage done by Goliath's taunts in verse 11. But David's words have greater power than Goliath's. Why? Because they are backed up by the Lord Almighty. They are backed up by his actions. Because when you read over this story, it's actually surprising how brief the actual fight between David and Goliath is. Just two verses. Verses 48 to 49. Actually, when it comes to it, David wins easily. In the end, Goliath is all talk and no action. While David both speaks of the power of the living God and he demonstrates it with a slingshot to Goliath's head. See, David triumphs over Israel's enemy so that Israel no longer has to fear that enemy. And if you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus' triumph over sin and the devil also has the power to free you from your fear of the enemy. See, David looked like he was going to his death when he faced up to Goliath. David's great descendant, Jesus, really did go to his death at Golgotha. He was nailed to a cross, died and was buried. But in that seeming defeat came his great victory over sin and the devil. Colossians 2 Verse 15 tells us that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities of the devil and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. On the cross, Jesus frees everyone who trusts in him from any claim sin or the devil had on them. See, Jesus triumphed over his enemies and we get to benefit from that. See, thanks to Jesus, sin and the devil are now a defeated enemy for the Christian. See, back in the Valley of Elah, David's victory over Goliath meant that the battlefield now belonged to the Israelites. They're no longer dismayed or terrified because David has won the battle on their behalf and now they could pursue the Philistines with courage and confidence knowing that the battle was won. Just read verse 52 for us. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shariam road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. The Israelites no longer have to fear the Philistines because David has won the battle for them. And in a similar way, Christians do not have to fear sin and the devil as they fight against them. They can fight with courage and confidence because Jesus has won the battle for us. See, earlier on we saw the danger of underestimating or denying the power of sin and the devil to to, to basically shipwreck lives. But while we need to see the danger of sin and the devil, we also need to be careful never to overestimate their power if we're trusting in Jesus. 
You see, thanks to Jesus, they are a defeated enemy. And we can fight against them with confidence, knowing that Jesus has won. So when the devil taunts us that God will abandon us because we are weak and sinful, we need to look to the cross to see God's utter commitment to forgive weak and sinful people like us and make us his own. When it feels like our struggle with sin is just too hard, we just feel like giving up against it. We need to look at the cross and know I am not fighting a losing battle. I am fighting a battle in a war on the winning side. When I say no to selfishness, when I say no to pride, I'm not just swimming against the tide. I am actually part of the winning force in this army. Jesus has won the battle for me. I can fight with confidence. And when we feel that God is maybe distant or far off or uninterested in us, again, we can look to Jesus who was made like us and is like us still. Who is able to sympathise with our weaknesses. Who knows what it's like to be human, to suffer temptation. And who is committed to giving us mercy and grace to help us when we need it. See, for all the power that sin and the devil seem to possess, if we belong to Jesus, then nothing can separate us from him. And the Puritan writer, Richard Sibbs, put it like this in 1630. He wrote, Oh, what a confusion is this to Satan, that he should labour to blow out a poor spark and yet shall not be able to quench it. That a grain of mustard seed should be stronger than the gates of hell. That it should be able to remove mountains of opposition and temptation cast up by Satan and our rebellious hearts between us and God. It must needs be a torment to Satan that a weak child, a woman, a decrepit old man should, by a spirit of faith, put him to flight. See what Sibs is saying there. Even the weakest believer, if they're trusting in Jesus, can overcome the devil and sin. They're a terrible enemy, but thanks to Jesus, they are defeated. They are beaten. And we can say no to them. So, the story of David and Goliath. It's a great story. It's a story the Israelites loved to remember because it reminded them of the promises of their God and the power of their God. But how much more today can Christians rejoice in Jesus' victory over sin and death, in Jesus' promises to us never to leave us, never to forsake us? See, let's be clear. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're in the middle of a war and there is fighting to be done. Fighting against our sinful nature. Fighting against the lies of the devil. Fighting to stay faithful to God. But ultimately, the war was won 2,000 years ago. It was won at the cross of Jesus. And our enemy is a defeated enemy. So as a church, as individuals, we can rejoice in the victory of Jesus for us and we can plunder 
the enemy. For peace with God. Peace with one another. And ultimately, a new creation that Jesus will bring about, free from war, free from the struggle with sin, where we will see our champion face to face, Jesus. And we will worship him as he deserves to be worshipped. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father God, we confess just how weak we often feel. Our hearts are weak and cold about you, Lord. We, we know how much we should long for you, and yet often we do not. We know how we want to love those around us in a way that honors you, and yet so often we do not. We want to trust your promises to us of forgiveness, of hope, of a new creation. And yet so often we do not. Father, then it staggers us even more that in spite of our faithlessness and fear and weakness, you sent your son, Jesus, into this world to rescue us, to fight on our behalf because we cannot fight on our own. And more than that, Lord, you won the victory there over sin, over death, over the devil. So that now when we trust in you, the victory is ours. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you that you lavished such grace on us that we now can celebrate the plunder of that victory. That we can know you. That we can be known by you. And that we can entrust our lives into your hands. Lord, help us to fight for you this week with confidence and courage. To say no to our sinful natures. And to seek to honour you in our lives. To trust in you. To listen to you speak. And to make you known. Give us the confidence we need to do that, Lord. That you have provided a champion for us. Jesus. And Lord, he has done everything necessary to make us right with you. We praise you for your grace and your strength this morning, Lord. Remind us of them as we leave this place. Amen.